0: The false teachers who are just involved in empty, useless things, the myths, the genealogies, the speculation, the fruitless discussion, things they don't even know what they're talking about, as opposed to the things that Paul taught that were solid and had really positive spiritual goals, the pure heart, the good conscience, the sincere faith that 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 lead to to the love that God expects. And you can always, you know, if it's God's teaching, there's going to be solid practical value. God doesn't tell us the things he does for some empty intellectual reason. He tells us what he does because it's it'll build us up. It's what's good for us. And uh, the false teachers, it's it's totally the opposite. So that's what we looked at Do you have any questions or comments before we move on? right, 8 through 11.
1: But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men, and homosexuals and kidnappers, and liars, and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted.
0: What's that saying?
1: The law is good.
0: Okay. The law is bad. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. This is a difficult section not to understand the details of. It's a difficult section to understand the purpose of. What's the point of him saying that? Is it saying that the law
2: defines sin?
0: Okay, it is to some extent saying that. It's saying that the law is, is teaching that these things are wrong. So that, yes, that's true. So what does that mean in the context? Why would he say that? he's saying here?
3: It is useful if you use it right. and They weren't
0: using it right. right. I think that's a, a definite possibility. It's probably what I would lean to. Is that God gave his law for practical moral guidance. It tells you what to do and what not to do. It's not for foolish speculations and argument and empty discussion. There's a real reason God gave his law. It, 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 it helps you live right. And uh, it's, it's not for righteous persons, it's to tell you all about all the things that are wrong. There's a second possibility. Maybe he's saying, maybe he's trying to get us away from these debates about the law in general and saying the law is really not for the righteous people anyway. <laughs> you know, if, the, if somebody's righteous, then they're doing what the law says. The law is really for the wicked people. It's the laws for the people who, who aren't doing what's right. I think I slightly prefer the first, but that is kind of the debate in this passage, is what's it saying, and why, why is he saying that? But I think I prefer a little bit the idea that the law is is positive. It'll it'll, it'll, it'll teach you how to live. If you use it right, if you use it wrong, you'll just debate about it all the time, and, you know, leads to just empty, useless speculation. Do you have comments or questions or thoughts about all of that? What was the second idea again? That the law is really not for righteous people; it's just for sinners. Because righteous people, they do this already. So that when they're all immersed in the law, why do they? Why are they doing that? You know, uh, if if they were living right, then they'd sort of be beyond that. I think the first one's easier for me to explain and fits best with the context of the Bible. Uh, but when he says the law is not made for a righteous person but for those who are lawless and so forth it it lends itself also to the possibility of that second
3: explanation isn't he saying that as almost a given in expressing the first point maybe so and the second is like it's obvious that the law is not I mean it's kind of like he goes into a lot of detail of something that they should already know
0: yes maybe so And maybe he is suggesting with all these details, they really need to straighten up their act. I mean, why bother telling them all these things if they aren't having problems with some of them? And maybe they'd not have so much problems with their debates and fruitless discussions if they just live right. So maybe he's saying, it has practical value and I wish you'd listen to the practical value instead of, you know, doing all this debating. Maybe that's part of it, too. You know how it is. The people who are endlessly arguing empty points of Scripture to no profit are usually the ones who aren't living it. You know, I mean, I don't know. I mean, the people who are, you know, forever debating over, you know, what what was Paul's thorn in the flesh, or, you know, the one I've... I i do not know much about this one, but I know it has existed and may still be going on. The question as to whether or not Jesus had a human spirit, or was his spirit divine, or did he have two spirits, one human and one divine? And that was really debated among some folks. I didn't happen to read much of that, because I wasn't interested. But it's like, wow. You've spent all this time thinking and debating and all that, and, and when you get done you really haven't answered the question, probably can't answer the question, I'm not even sure that's the right question to ask. And How's that helped you get closer to the Lord? I mean, sometimes... But but you take somebody who's constantly immersed in that and nine times out of ten they're going to completely miss how to live by the law. It becomes just sort of a, a matter of you know, who can one-up the other one with another passage you know, or <coughs> Anything else you guys want to say through verse 11?
3: Yeah, the list. I just thinking of this, the, uh, You know, people try to justify any, anything and everything. But one of the things we've heard some of is trying to justify homosexuality even in the scripture. Yet in this passage it is in a list of things that are contrary to sound teaching and all of the others you know, most people would agree are contrary to sound teaching. You see what I'm saying? There? I do. And that is, that's exactly right.
0: We tend to overlook this passage in connection with homosexuality and because it's in the list with all these others, that is a strong point. Yes. Of course, we also overlook sexual immorality and think that's okay in our day. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, you're right. We, we we definitely would uh, have a problem with those who kill their fathers or mothers you know um, but he put them in the same list uh, it's also probably instructive and you know practical for us that liars are in this list because wow I mean I think that is a practical question for Christians I, I see more and more struggles that I have with that and I realize a lot of brethren, were not, we're not as careful, to be honest, as we ought to be. And I would say, I mean, I think that is a almost an epidemic in my limited sample of, say, you know late elementary school, junior high, early high school kids, I mean, that's almost the, the most prevalent sin I think there is in that age bracket is lying. I mean, it becomes just a pattern for plenty of kids from Christian homes that have been fairly well raised, but they lie all the time. <coughs> and God is just so strong about that. He is the God of truth. He abominates falsehood. You know where all lying comes from. It comes from Satan. And so, I mean, if we're going to have anything in common with God, we're going to be
3: extremely (coughs) careful, to be honest. It's amazing how how habitual that is, too. I mean, it's, for whatever reason that it starts, pride or self-preservation or whatever (laughs) it may be. But we probably, I mean, adults anyway, probably know other people that are habitual liars that we work with and whatever they can't even tell you how they drove into work without saying something that was just totally not true
0: about it we've come to the point where we don't expect anyone to be
3: totally honest
0: with us we have to read between the lines and figure out based upon what they said what the truth really was that ought not to be so and if we are people who (laughs) don't see ourselves as telling out and out lies we may need to be more concerned to be absolutely honest. That's where I find myself. You know, it's not that every word of the sentence was untrue, but it's that it wasn't totally honest. It, it, it was, you know, it was a distortion of the truth, which is a nice way of saying it was a lie. I think the biggest problem that I see
3: with that is allowing people to believe something that, That we know is not true and intentionally allowing them to believe. You know, saying something to, we didn't say a lie, but we knew that that would leave an impression of something that was not true. And we, I think that is.
0: Yeah, I'm thinking also about like exaggerations where we're trying to promote ourselves and we embellish our story in ways that, you know, you see that occasionally in the Bible. Or when you are caught and you have to admit something, you admit sort of some of it to some extent, but the way you say it by the time you get done, it's really not an accurate reflection of what you did. You've doctored it up enough and you've twisted it enough that it really, the truth, the reality and what you said are not the same. And, you know, that
4: uh, reminds me why we do that. We do that to make ourselves look good make ourselves look better and I think it comes down to selfishness comes down to every sin I do believe that thinking about ourselves and when do we mess up most is when we're thinking about ourselves we're drawing ourselves instead of God Philippians 4, eight. dwell on these things that are good things that are righteous and the things that are good report. poor meditate on these things think about the things of God not the things of ourselves that's when we truly mess up the things
0: good point think about this have you ever done something And there was one other person that knows exactly what you did. They were a witness or whatever. And if they are present when you tell the story, you are more careful to be exactly accurate because you know they'll know you're lying and they may expose it. If they're not there, then you may twist it somewhat. (coughs) My God knows the exact truth and he's always there we would quit thinking about what other people are going to think and think about what God's going to think, it would help us be more honest.
4: Which one, ma- which one matters
0: too. Exactly.
5: How do you instill that importance in kids? I mean, when I was raised, we were always taught it was very, very serious to lie. Um, and I, I knew that growing up. But since then, I've seen other kids, like Christian kids from other homes, who apparently weren't taught that and um, my sister was telling me it was time they were babysitting for some kids from church, and this one little boy was caught in a lie doing something he wasn't supposed to be doing, and he lied about it, and they confronted him with it, and he just didn't see any importance at all in it, and had absolutely no remorse or anything. Is there any way to instill uh, in a child like that the importance of telling the truth?
0: Well, that's a good question. I mean, I, I share your observations. I am horrified by what I see in elementary and junior high school age kids of good families that are essentially good kids, but the lying is a major part of their life. And I don't think it has been in my kids. The worst thing about lying is you don't always know when you're a parent. Here's what we tried to do. You know, we tried to not only teach but show lying is ten times worse than anything else they could do. The punishment for lying was way worse than the punishment we give for anything else. I mean, we didn't catch them in many, but boy, when we did, that was a major, major issue. And I did that in part because I think lying's that serious, and also <coughs> because I realized how vulnerable I was when my kids lied i couldn't always tell and i i felt like i had to do everything i could to make sure that 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 was rooted out early because what i realize is what ends up happening is kids get by with it a lot uh, and 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 you can see why i mean it is difficult to tell a good liar is convincing now Parents need to be wise and observant and all that, but I still think that it's difficult at times to to catch, and and you know if a kid lies very well, sometimes he will get by with it, and so I really tried. If we when whenever we caught them, that was the thing we made the biggest deal about <clears throat> and made it the strictest punishment over, them. other than just teaching the principle being truthful and how important that is to God I don't know some of the rest of you what have you done what do you recommend what do you guys what do you recommend
1: one of the one of the little girls at church um, was went up to one of the dry dry erase boards and she was starting to write on it and I said are you supposed you're probably not supposed to do that and she said mommy said I could do that and then I said, well, okay. I thought it was unlikely, but right. thought, okay. Yeah. She asked, whatever. A few minutes later, Mommy comes in and says, what are you doing? You're not supposed to do that. And you know, told her she couldn't, and I made the comment to the mother. She told me that she could. I thought it was kind of strange, but you know, I figured you know, <coughs> that's why I didn't stop her. I was, was explaining that. A few minutes later, Mother and Daughter come back over. Daughter is crying horribly and she is uh her mother required her to come over and apologize to me for lying good to me good i mean it was it was a big deal to this kid and to this parent i mean so
0: i think that would be the right thing i think i don't know that that's a really practical question i mean i thought about it a lot when my kids were younger because I, did, I hadn't thought about it as much until I became a parent. They can, they can get me. You know, I may not be able to figure this one out. And so I felt like it was pretty important for me to uh, be sure that I had, you know, tried to do everything I could. I don't think my kids' like very much, but who knows. <laughs> what, do you th- what do you think, guys? Was there anything your parents did or could have done that would have helped <coughs> some of your parents here now?
4: I'll tell you one thing, I can't do much from the parenting standpoint, at all. But from my standpoint, I remember the same way with my parents. You know, lying was the utmost worst thing you could do. You lied, you couldn't sit down for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, and there was even some times that I did get away with it, and that just encouraged me even more to do it because I got away with it. Nobody will find out. And there's always, you know, in the back of your mind, there's there's a difference between. Knowing something and understanding something. You know God knows, but you don't understand. You know, you're a little kid you don't understand. You know that's why I know. It's one day you're going to be found out. But I would do it. And of course I would get away with it. And just encourage me to do it more. And then until I came to the realization that, no, I'm not doing this because, I'm not I'm not going to do this because parents are going to kill me. I'm going to do this because it's wrong. I don't know if there's much you can do. Yes, you can hinder it by, by, you know, by punishing them. But really, I don't think until we come to the realization ourselves, we're not going to do much about it. And if we do, it's not going to be the right reasons. And I think, really, I didn't realize how much trouble could get me into. You know, the punishment for it, not of my parents, but, you know, the things that came back to haunt me. You know, what would happen after I did it. You know, it sometimes haunts me to this day. And, until I, and then, after the punishment happens, of course, sometimes we, we wouldn't learn. If we were whipped, if we couldn't sit down for a while, maybe for a couple of weeks we would do it, but we wouldn't learn our lesson. But after a while, when you truly get punished, and something you really happens, you'll never forget it. That's when you're not going to do it real often you know, anymore. We've got to learn for ourselves. Anita? Right?
0: I
2: was going to say that the punishment didn't always fit the crime. It was usually bigger than the crime to make an impression. Impression. You know, when they have to call their friends and say, can't come over because I lied. You know, yes. that's a big one. But I think mostly, as we didn't really have many issues. I and mean, one of them lied about stupid things like, yeah, I brush my teeth and go across the hall to the bathroom. Your toothbrush is not even wet.
1: <laughs> you know, that
2: kind of stuff. But uh, I'll leave it to you to figure out which one that is. I'm going to look at it. <laughs> but um, as they got older and they realized that trust was really, really important. And that uh, their privileges depend on my... Being able to trust them, and if they lie in small things, there's no way because I was there when age one, and I was a whole lot worse than they are. I'm not going to trust them yeah. if they can't if they can't tell the line in a small thing. Then there's not much of a chance they'll do it in a big thing.
0: Yeah,
2: and they understand that.
0: And lying destroys trust. Absolutely destroys it. for a long time. I mean, you know, I hate it. You know, i I mean, I'm close to a lot of teenagers and you know i've been in situations with teenagers who have lied even to me and i knew it or i found out it's so it's you hate it so badly because for a long time after that it leaves you that question mark in the back of your head you know i think they're telling the truth but i know they're capable of lying there's somebody who I've never known to lie. It's so much easier to trust. Them. It's just really devastating in my life. And
2: winning back that trust is so hard. Being on the other side of it, you know, you have to be so just blatantly honest that it hurts you. And you know, not yes. like overkill honest. Yes.
0: It. I agree. It's really hard to win back that trust and it's really the Lord knew what he was talking about. This, these practical lessons in the law are ones we need. They're important for us. How
5: did you deal with it when you caught one of those kids lying? And, <coughs> you know, not yours, but you know, someone you were working with.
0: I have tried to do the very same thing, obviously, without punishment, punishment. But I have had my most serious talks. I have scared some kids half out of their <laughs> Not physically, but just in, in terms of the seriousness and the soberness and, and the concern that I had. I've, that's, I, I have done the same thing almost naturally in, in just showing them and telling them how horrible that has been for me and how serious I think that is. Um, That's all I know to do. You know, I've had situations sometimes where parents have come to me and told me about their children lying and have, uh, you know, tried to, you know, talk to them, you know, talk to their children at their request even about that and have done that.
1: I think it it may be important as well for the parents to get across that the child should not be afraid to tell the truth you've done something wrong i am going to be so mad about it but tell me the truth anyways you know i mean you lie to cover up things and you know if you've done something wrong you're not necessarily going to admit it and you're less likely to admit it if you know that your, your parents are going to fly off the handle and good point You know, having them say, I would rather have the truth, as bad as it is, than a lie.
5: What do you do if the child lies about it initially and then maybe slightly gets away with it or does get away with it and then comes later and says, I'm sorry I did this, you know, I I lied to you. Do you, I guess you still punish them for lying 1st time I don't want to punish them so badly that they're discouraged from admitting they are a lie
0: either. If their confession was not because they were getting caught, I would mostly praise them for it. I don't think I would punish them. You know, if their confession was because they'd been found out, then no. But if their confession was just that their conscience got the better of them, I remember doing that. I did not, I did not lie much as a kid. Uh, I really didn't, but I remember one time, I may have used this illustration in something else, but I was probably 11 or 12, maybe 13, I don't know. And my bicycle was the kind that had the handlebar, the old style, and it was supposed to have rubber grips on the end of the handlebar, but they long since disappeared. And I came into the garage too fast and put a line down the car, you know, accidentally <laughs> with my handlebar. And Dad asked at supper that night if any of us knew about the, the line down the car. And of course, all of us said we didn't, but I couldn't go to sleep that night, and I, I went in and told mom and dad. And I, you know, I do not remember real distinctly all that happened. But I don't think that was all that serious. I, I don't think I got punished much for that. And, I, and I, as I recall, I think they were, you know, supportive of the fact that my conscience had bothered me and I told the truth. I would think that would be the thing to do. If they had, if they were courageous enough to do that, I think that deserves praise and not punishment. I remember fairly recently that happened to me.
4: I something caught me by surprise and I just blurted out just a quick answer. The first thing came to my mind, and then I remember laying there and going, "That was stupid." I remember going back and telling my dad, and thinking, "Oh boy, here we go. You know, punishment all over again." And I told him, and he comes back and thanks me. I was like, "What? No bruises? (laughs) You know, like?" (laughs) who are you? What have you done with my father? That really that really encouraged me not to, to, you know. I wouldn't say encourage me not to lie, in a way it did. But it also gave me encouragement to know that if I did come out by myself, he wouldn't punish me. I think I did get a little bit punished, but not nearly as bad. I could sit down for a little bit longer, if I remember right. But um,
0: uh, that's the way I feel about it. I mean, I think I think I would say I wouldn't punish for that. Yeah. All right, why don't we move on, uh, twelve to seventeen?
6: I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me, because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer, and a persecutor, and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy, because I acted ignorantly and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement, de- deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me. As the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.
0: Alright, so Paul speaks of what the gospel has done for him. And he starts in verse 12 by saying, I thank who? That's a bit out of the ordinary. Who would he normally express thanks to? God the Father. God, God the Father, or maybe God the family. (laughs) You know, but to specifically say, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord is unusual, but is okay. Is it okay for us to thank Jesus directly? (laughs) We do do that in songs more commonly, you know, but it's okay to do it in prayer. It's okay to actually say something directly to Jesus when we're praying that's a debated issue and there's a lot of people who argue against that this passage is one of the clearest about that Um, and he is reporting this when Paul does these things he's reporting what he prayed but he reports it because he prayed it (laughs) it's not a false report it's a true report so he actually had thanked Jesus alright thanks for calling but he sees the Lord as the source of what he's thanking him for. So what's he thanking him for? Strength. That he'd strengthen him um, and we need to see that God is the one who strengthens us, who empowers us. It's not some it's not our education it's not our personality it's not our contacts it's the lord that strengthens us but he strengthened him to do what to
1: put him into service
0: yes which is the role paul sees himself as having he's in the service not the military service but that's his highest goal is to be a servant and and that's that's what the lord had done for him now what had the Lord seen in him that caused him to want to make him a servant
5: he's faithful
0: which is the qualification of service <clears throat> that, that's what it takes not great ability not this not that but, but faithfulness you know what God uh, the, the the first qualification of service is, is being faithful and um, that's what that's what the Lord saw in Paul and therefore he strengthened him the amazing thing to Paul about this though is what what he
1: was before
0: yes and what was he before persecutor man he was a violent persecutor of Christians and what happened to
7: him God showed him mercy absolutely and the power of
0: grace overcame the power of sin in Paul's life and you know with with in verse 14 the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus which faith and love sort of sum up Christianity in contrast with the false teachers in 1.6 who had strayed away from those things and in contrast with Paul's previous life you take Paul as a persecutor would you characterize him as a man of faith in Christ? No. He was known for what in verse 13?
1: Blasphemy, violence,
0: aggression.
1: and aggression.
0: And what's the contrast to faith in verse 13? Unbelief. And uh, he certainly wasn't a man who had love for the Lord and his people. He essentially hated them. So Paul was totally did a 180. He was totally transformed by the grace of God, and Paul sees that as a prototype, as a model for anyone of what God's grace can do in changing a life. In fact, how does Paul see himself? The
2: chiefest of sinners.
0: Yes. And to see what God did with the chief of sinners, the chief, what can he do with everybody else who's a sinner? You know, if the worst one is transformed by the grace of God, how about all the others? But there's something that really surprises me in verse 15. There is one word that I would not normally even read correctly that doesn't seem right. What word is that? You know, don't you? We talked about that, didn't we, David? What is it? Am. Am. Why does that seem weird? Because he still is. Yeah. We, I would have expected, I was. You know, he came to the world to save sinners, among whom I was foremost of all. He says, among whom I am foremost of all. What do you think about that?
3: once saved, always saved, once a sinner, always a sinner? <laughs> <laughs> well, we don't really
0: like the first part of that, so, maybe so. I don't know.
2: Is it a statement of humility?
0: It, it is. But, it's not false humility.
1: He's still, He's still aware, even though the we'll call them the big sins of, you know, violent aggression and blasphemy and persecution, he's no longer actively engaged in those. The sins that he does commit have taken on the same importance that, or magnitude that those others had. Even the smallest of sins makes him the, the foremost of sinners.
0: I think there's a lot of truth to that. I'll buy that. What else would you say about this?
7: Perhaps it also speaks to his <clears throat> his realization that he's ever growing, ever maturing, ever <clears throat> becoming more what God wants him to be and that you know he's not plateaued. Uh, that's not the same as saying, I don't, I don't know if that's exactly the same as saying I'm, I'm sinning, but yet in that process I think see that.
0: there's obviously a balance to a whole lot of things but I do think it's worth giving some thought to this idea I use my illustration that some of you have heard Um, when you look around in here what do you see in the air I don't see anything you see anything pretty clear to me If, I don't know if this ever happens here, but if there was really bright sunshine that shined through this window and I was looking at the air, what would I see? Nothing. (laughs) No. (laughs) You ever done that before? Do you realize how much garbage is in the air? It's just amazing. It's, It's incredible. I mean, it's just full of gunk. I don't know what all that stuff is, but you don't, yeah, but you don't see it until you get close to the strong light. The closer a person gets to Jesus, in my judgment, the more they're going to see all the garbage in their life. When you see somebody who says, oh, you know, I'm pretty good. I don't really have much problem. I am pretty much conquered, you know sin problems in my life, I, you know, it's not, big a, not a big deal for me anymore, but that's usually a sign, they're so far away from the Lord, they don't even recognize it, you know, kind of like looking around, the air, Oh, I think it's pretty clean, well of course we do, isn't a very strong light, you know, and uh, I think Paul had got close enough to the Lord, that he's realizing how filthy his life still is. I don't want, I don't think he takes that as a defeatist concept. But I do think that we struggle sometimes with a self-satisfied, you know, self-righteous idea that, well, it sure is good I had God to be gracious to me, and it's nice I don't need him anymore for that. Well, we just ought to be, of all people, we ought to see, how we really are. I
7: don't know, what do you think? An older Christian that I just respect so much said that the older he gets, the more the more difficult it becomes being a Christian. And I think it's just what you've said. It's that you see all the struggle and it's no longer, you know, these these big three things. Now it's it's Every area of my life needs to be brought into conformance with the will of God, and, and He sees that so much more clearly. Yes. Yeah.
0: Yes. Other thoughts?
7: I had a question.
0: Uh, in verse twelve, uh, it says God is judged. Paul, faithful. Yes. Verses 13 and 13 says, I lacked faith. Verse 14 says, I was, the grace of uh, the Lord filled me with faith. What's the, uh? I think faithful, maybe more in the sense of like dependable. If you stop and think about what you want in a servant, If you were going to, you know, have a slave, what would you most want in him? Loyalty—that he does what you say. I mean, you got an employee. You got a brilliant employee. That's not going to be worth nearly as much to you as the employee who actually follows orders. You know, the one who's brilliant and multi-talented but goes off and does his own thing, doesn't bother to listen to you. You can't use him. That's
1: why I can't get a <laughs>
0: job. <laughs> so, you know, I think he saw in Paul that spirit of willingness to be obedient and loyal, as opposed to he considered me eloquent or he considered me intellectual. or he, what. It, you know, I mean, I think if I was looking for an employee... I mean, I want them to follow orders, you know? <laughs> That's going to be at the top of my list. You know, no amount of talent will make up for our disobedience. <clears> Other <throat> thoughts and questions through here?
6: This is kind of a side note, but you were mentioning how I was thanking Jesus. Um, what do you think about, like, asking Jesus for things in prayer like you would do to the Father?
0: Yes. Okay. Yeah, I think... Um, John 5.23 says that we should honor the Son even as we honor the Father. Just as we honor the Father. So I think any honor that's appropriate to the Father is appropriate to the Son. And there are some passages, John 16, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, where you have the idea of asking Jesus. And uh, certainly in Revelation 5 you have the idea of praising Jesus and so i really think that yes we can I, I suspect that often when prayers are addressed to god in the bible it's not to god the father as much as it's to god and uh that it it's there's nothing bad about directing a specific thing in our prayer to jesus that's we certainly do that in our songs
5: you know and uh,
0: I must tell Jesus, I must tell Jesus all of my, whatever I can, bear my burdens alone and all that. And uh, and I, I, it seems
7: to me like we've got biblical authorization for that. We know how Paul uh, was shown the light on the road to Damascus. And so he acting um, in ignorance was shown mercy. Yes. So God is just. God's not a respecter of persons. That, how does that then play out for others who are acting in ignorance? And and God, God's not going to evidently appear to them like He did to Paul, right? So how is God going to show others the same mercy He did to Paul? for them acting in unbelief
0: or in ignorance. What I would say about that, I think, is this. The mercy Paul speaks of is the mercy of the forgiveness that God gave when he repented. It is true that God appeared to Paul in a special way, I think primarily to qualify him as an apostle. And God's not going to appear to us in that way, but we have God's word And in fact, even in Paul's case, God in that appearance did not tell what Paul needed to do to come in contact with his grace. He sent Ananias to do that. And so I think the mercy here, he's not so much thinking about the light as he is about the forgiveness God was willing to give when he arose and was baptized and washed away his sins. And, you know, the idea of God being no respecter of persons, we may need to qualify slightly depending on how we think about that. God is willing to forgive anyone who repents. That does not mean, as far as I can see, that God gives everyone exactly equal opportunity to know the gospel. I don't think that he does. I don't think that he ever has. I mean, God would say things like, well, if these things had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah or Tyre and Sidon or whatever they are done in you, they'd have repented. But they weren't done in them. You know, clearly there's a difference. And, and that's, you know, that, that's going to be. I mean, some people have more opportunity. And Jesus will say, to whom I give much, I require much. You know, there's some who have more more opportunity. Now, God will expect more out of them. But I don't think God has given exactly the same opportunity to each one to hear. But he will be equally merciful to anyone who repents. All right? And so Paul is this model, you know, and he says, I found mercy so that God could really show. <laughs> I'm, I'm the example. You can't be too bad for God's mercy uh, to, to, to be inaccessible if you'll repent. And he praises God in verse 17. You know, reflecting on God's grace in his life, moves into worship God. And he's just amazed when he thinks about how great God is in verse 17, that a God like that would save him, would be gracious and merciful to him. It is more impressive that God has this grace and mercy for us when we see God like he says in verse 17. If we see God as just sort of a glorified man, then maybe his mercy is not quite so spectacular. But when we see who God is, can you believe that God, the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, was merciful to me. How amazing. Thoughts and comments?
7: And I can't help
4: but, you know, just stand in awe of the love that Christ has. You know, dying on the cross is... is enough. But yet, even when we totally reject Him, it's good. I mean, it may have been out of ignorance yet. When we reject Him, he still, it, he's, yeah, he still forgives us. It really makes me think about how, how great love is, you know. It's kind of like, you know, something that you cherish so much more. If you, if you work hard and you get paid a check that you totally deserve, it's not worth as much to you as a gift, something that you don't deserve. That's what's so great about love is that we don't deserve it. And that's how much more we should cherish, because we don't deserve it. love that love that we feel like we deserve. It never is as as close to our heart as the as the love that is given to us that we don't deserve. Amen.
6: I have a
0: question:
6: um, When you were talking about the dust in the sunlight, you know. Yes. Um. Well, I think you mentioned how you can't go too far with that. I think, like, sometimes I feel like so overwhelmed seeing how much I need to work on. And so, like, is there a balance there? Like, I mean, seeing your sin and then being, like, depressed about it, you know? Like, you know what I'm saying?
0: Yes. Wow, there's several things. One is, don't see your sin without seeing the grace of God, as Paul does here in this passage. I mean, Paul's point here is, is how amazing God's grace and mercy is for him, the chief of sinners. So that's that's what he thought about when he saw all that, is wow, God's grace is so amazing. He is forgiving even me. So that's one point. Another thing I would say is that there is a sense in which we need to see the transformation God has given us and the victories he has given us and see how much he has freed us from the grip of sin you know we have changed we've changed a lot God has strengthened us a lot and we need to give him glory and thanks and praise for that you know and Paul certainly would acknowledge that in his own life in fact he did Romans 6 7 and 8 he talks about the contrast between how he had lived and now how he's freed from that and, and walks by, by the Spirit. And so, you know, it's not that everything we think about in the Bible shows us how bad we are. There are things that show how much God has done in changing us also. Other thoughts?
1: Sometimes it helps to look back and remember again what you were. And see what you are. I've been going through a lot of old papers and everything and trying to move everything that I've got at my mom's house and I've come across things that I'm I'm ashamed to have ever written or, or whatever and it's hard to sometimes recognize how far you come, but, I mean, I wouldn't write those things now, I wouldn't do those things now, and at one time, I wouldn't have thought about not doing them, or not writing them. Um, So, I mean, you can look back and see what you were, and how much you have changed, particularly when you look and you don't seem to be changing, you go, well, have I changed, what was I like ten years ago, or five years ago, whatever. That can
7: sometimes help. Other
0: thoughts? 18 to 20.
3: This command I entrust you, to <clears throat> my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you might fight the good fight keeping faith, and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regards to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, who I have delivered over to Satan, so that they may be taught not to blaspheme.
0: All right, he comes back to this command he's entrusted to him. I suspect he's going back to verse 3, where he'd urged him when he left for Macedonia to instruct these certain men not to teach strange doctrines. I think he's coming back to that. He said, I entrust this command to you, Timothy. And he wants Timothy to fight the good fight. Um, here, I think, the idea of fighting the good fight is fighting against false teaching. I know that we have seen uh, political fights. And we've seen fights with impure, self-righteous unloving attitudes and I fear that at times we've come to accept more the spirit of our age that well we just shouldn't be fighting false teaching that is not true I mean that's what this says that's what this book teaches it is important that we teach the truth and we follow the truth and God cares about truth and error we should not let bad men's misguided attempts to defend the truth draws away from the biblical emphasis on the need to fight the good fight and forcefully, verbally but forcefully oppose error. And that's what Timothy was going to have to do. And um, in doing that he had to keep faith and a good conscience. Now, you remember that that's uh, these men, verse 6, and strayed away from those things. And it's important that Timothy not follow them. You know, he could he could fall into the same errors they did. He could be like a doctor treating a sick person and manage to get the same infection. So he's got to be careful that he is sincere and virtuous and has faith, you know, not to not to fall into their errors. Um And and, and again, he says, some people rejected those things and they suffered suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith, uh, which shows that a believer can be lost. What if your faith is shipwrecked? (laughs) Are you saved? No. You don't have faith anymore. Um, And he gives a couple of illustrations of that with Hymenaeus and Alexander, who were two men evidently that Paul had excluded from the fellowship of Christians because they were teaching things that were wrong. And so, Paul himself has fought hard against false teachers like them. Comments and questions?
4: Are these Alexander and Hymenaeus, are they a part of the church at Ephesus? Or do you know?
0: I don't know where they were.
4: Be kind of awkward for me to think about. Earlier in the chapter, he didn't name off names, and now he is... We found out earlier in the chapter that he didn't say he was teaching the false doctrine and now he is. Do you
0: understand what I'm saying? Yes, but I think he's using them as examples to show what he's done in fighting the good fight and in opposing the false teaching. So I think it's not that he tried to avoid giving names when it was practical. In this case, it's like, remember what I did to those two guys? Here's an example for you of how you ought to handle some of these things.
1: An example of how to fight the good fight.
0: Yes. You deliver to Satan these men who make shipwreck of the faith. You exclude them from the company of believers. It is not right for us to allow people in a congregation to teach things that are wrong. I'm not saying, you know, they have they have a mis. I think they have a misunderstanding of some text. I'm saying the doctrines they teach are are against what the Bible teaches. We should not allow them to do that in a congregation. Here's a question for
5: you. Uh, I have a friend who was the congregation which she described as being uh, a little more non-traditional. Okay. Um, And she said, like, one of the (laughs) instances she said was, well, we have a deacon who believes in premillennialism, but he doesn't teach it to us, and we don't bother trying to talk to him about it. What do you think about that?
0: Well, we'll find out in chapter 3, and in verse... uh, Nine, that to be a deacon they must hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. I think that the, a man is not qualified to be a deacon if he believes premillennialism. I mean, that's a pretty destructive false doctrine, and that's certainly not the true mystery of the faith. So I'd say they've at least done wrong to appoint him as a deacon. I would not require every new convert who's learning to be exactly where I am in certain teachings. I wouldn't make a distinction between somebody who teaches something and somebody who's confused about something. But if they're a deacon, then we consider them to be a strong Christian. And I, I would think that would be a problem. I don't think the church should have done that. Either. A
2: different question. Um, when Paul says that he handed these men over to Satan, was he using... Was he using apostolic power? I mean, when when he says he handed him over to Satan, did he pr- make a pronouncement to a congregation about him? Did he just say, look, you know, I give up on you for now let Satan deal with you? I, I don't quite understand. I'm that.
0: glad you asked that question. I was hoping someone would. I think that's First Corinthians 5 that uses the same language where Paul tells the Corinthians about the man who was living with his stepmother. And Paul told them in verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 5, In the name of our Lord Jesus, When you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Delivering this man to Satan was what Paul wanted the Corinthian church to do and he was going, he was essentially going to be there spirit in spirit and do it with them. And I think it means there are two spheres. You're either in Christ or you're in Satan. If you are a member in a congregation, apparently you're in Christ. And when you are excluded from the congregation, (coughs) that is the congregation delivering you to Satan. You're outside of the sphere of the congregational fellowship. And so they are publicly declaring you not in Christ, not in fellowship of the congregation, and in the sphere of Satan. So I believe that is an action that's taken in conjunction with the church to exclude someone from their fellowship. I would assume that's what probably what Paul has done. With these two. That he's led a congregation. Maybe the church at Ephesus. Or maybe a church where he is now. To exclude these two. From the fellowship of the congregation. So that's what I would compare as 1 Corinthians 5. We would not Maybe be so quick to do that. Um, you know, we might think, well, you know, I mean, I know they, they they, teach some things that aren't really right, but, you know, I mean, none of us are perfect. Well, I'm not saying we should knee-jerk the first time somebody misses some thought or ready to deliver them to Satan. But when people teach things that are wrong, and that lead people to do wrong that are destructive doctrines they ought not to be tolerated a congregation ought to exclude them I, you know I don't always like the consequences of what the bible teaches but I would say one of the practical and relevant things for us about that is probably if there is someone in a congregation who teaches that divorced people can remarry i'm talking about those who did not divorce for fornication and they perhaps encourage brethren yeah it's okay you know it's fine that i think that's revelation too you know pergamum and thyatira were condemned for tolerating those who taught christians it's okay to be immoral and I think that's exactly what that does. That teaches Christians it's okay to commit adultery. And and that's very relevant. I mean, I'm just saying that's one of the things that comes up in our in our time. And, and, and I think it would be appropriate for a church to deliver to Satan someone who refused to correct that false teaching. And that's really prevalent. I don't necessarily like that. I mean, I'm a product of our culture, too, where it's not better just, well, let you know, hopefully we'll influence them in time. You know, I mean, no, we're all wrong about something, you know, they're they're probably misguided, you know, maybe they grew up that way or whatever. And I'm not saying the first time they say something, we're ready to cut them off. We study with them and teach them and try to bring them to the truth. But, but I, I think we really need to be more serious about applying the passages like this that teach us we've got to fight. And I don't like it, but that's because I don't care as much about them purity of truth and the honor of God as I ought to, if I really loved God more, I would be more outraged by what people do that hurt other people. I was just talking just uh, two days ago with a Christian who is contemplating remarriage and had gotten from a relative some garbage about divorce mean marriage, totally ridiculous and wrong. And, you know, the Christian who gave it to her, I'm not even sure that they're a Christian, the relative who gave it to her, or certainly if they are a Christian, should never have done that. And whoever wrote that stuff, they're just promoting immorality. And 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 giving you know, all all somebody needs sometimes is a little bit of boost from a Christian that tells them it's okay to do wrong. So I think we do have to be firm on on biblical issues. And we have to be radical in congregations expecting people to teach that. And if they teach otherwise and refuse to correct it, they have to be disciplined. I
2: think we soft-pedal discipline a lot because we're so afraid to hurt people's feelings and uh, to completely turn them away forever because if we take a hard approach to it, then they'll never, ever come back. You know, I see it in my own family where, you know, maybe the relationship isn't quite what it would be if the person was doing correctly, but it's sure not delivering them to Satan.
0: It's where we must trust God. You know, He knows more about how to do things than we do. And we reason this is kind of productive, this won't work, this will be bad. But who are we to say? God knows. But it's really hard. It be the
4: best thing they do for them.
0: I mean, that was First Corinthians 5. Deliver them to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that their spirit could be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. God's hope was that the extreme action would bring about their repentance. <clears throat> I'd... I, scares me how much I am affected by our culture that is so much you can believe anything you want to just don't criticize anybody else for what they believe or do you know if it's fine for you if that's what you want to believe if that's what you want to do great wonderful that's probably wonderful for you but now don't you be so prideful and narrow-minded as to think other people have to follow your truth it's truth for you that need. is truth for them, and all that kind of stuff. And we are more affected by that, I think, than what we think we are. And that is just not biblical. That's that's the latest satanic wrinkle to try to corrupt brethren.
7: Something that's a bit more gray, but I think just as uh, you know, dangerous is you know worldliness, greed, and while the. You would go up to most Christians and they would say, no, 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 I, I, I don't believe that, and that's wrong. Yet their lifestyle says, it's okay. Now they're not out, you know, pounding the pulpit saying, you all need to be greedy. But yet, the lifestyle says, what I do is okay, and it's okay for you too.
0: Absolutely. And that does have an influence. They talk to your kids and they say, well, you know, you really need to be sure you get a really good job. You need to make a lot of money. You know, this is the kind of car you need to drive. This is the kind of this and that, you know. And, you know, I mean, we can't, we can't, we can't report everything on our taxes. I mean, you know, everybody else is dishonest. You know, we're going to, you know, they, they ask too much anyway and so forth and so on. You can just think of all kinds of things that that corrupt influence spreads, and corrupts others. And, uh, you know, I mean, wow. I know even for my kids, some of the worst influences for them at certain points were other Christian young people whose standards were not biblical. You know, wearing things that Christians ought not to wear, seeing movies that Christians ought not to see. And I'm not talking about something that might be <laughs> slightly in gray or things that really weren't right. And yet, oh, I thought it was fine. Which is much, I mean, wow, in all those areas, in, in worldliness areas, wow. So many Christians have gone completely away from what I think the Bible teaches. And, and you know, and so pretty soon they're, they're with my kids and like, well, let's go see this movie. <laughs> you know, and that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, the more we just kind of you know, we, there's an expression in Portuguese, passar a mão na cabeça. You sort of, sort of just pass your hand over the head, and the idea is, you know, you just kind of let it go. You know, you just kind of, it's okay. You know, and, and the more we do that, the more corruption, the more, the more um, <coughs> Christians' faith and morality is just undermined, and and we just gradually erode spiritual values and principles. I, I, I believe that we need to be patient with new converts. I believe that we need to, you know, be kind-spirited. But we have to fight and we have to be firm and we have to teach the truth even when it's not popular and even when it may mean. There are some people who don't like it and they go away mad and they don't, they don't come back. Well, that may happen. But, but what's our alternative? Well, let's make the church a place where everybody's going to feel comfortable no matter what they do. And pretty soon, it's not going to be any different than any social club on, on
3: the face of the planet. We see so much better. We get to where we think it's a, uh, a right... And I think in America, probably more than so than other places, we have so many, you know, it's a God, you've heard the God-given right. <laughs> your voting is a God-given right. That's, it's so ridiculous, the things that we all, there's the so many people call that. But when, like John mentioned about the the wealth, why well, don't I have a right to these things? So we're influenced by it, I think, the world gradually in and, and so many areas like that. Like you mentioned, the clothing in the movie. Don't I have the right to go see a good movie? Yes. You know, I don't have a right to marry or to, uh, to wear these things, to do these. There's a lot of things that as a Christian you're not going to get to do because even though the world, everybody's doing them, a Christian can't do those things. So if every movie that's ever made isn't fit to be watched, a Christian cannot watch a movie. Yeah. That's that's the final say on that, but we can't imagine that. We, why should I be denied that pleasure? And then we compromise in little area. Well, if it's a group that's going, or if it's a, some, and with the clothing, that's one thing that just amazes me. Is a lot of people won't wear something immodest in most situations, but yeah, when they go to the beach, if they go to the beach, if they're a, if they're in a wedding. How many times would someone wear something in a wedding that's just totally immodest that they would never think to wear to church or any other place in public? But because of that, well, that's society. You can't say that that's wrong. I mean, everybody has the right to to be in a wedding. If I don't wear it, I can't be in the wedding. So what? Don't be in the wedding. Don't go to the beach. Don't do those things.
0: And, and do you see, I mean, more fundamentally, what's our problem? We have come to want to be accepted by everybody. We want to do what everybody does. We want to be seen as normal. We're Christian people, but not Christian people. You know, it's okay to be religious. We go to church, you know, and we've got, a, we've got our beliefs, but But, you know, when they start making us stand out as weird, then that's hard for us. And it's the danger we face as we are more successful as people. We begin to be thought of more highly. And that's the most dangerous thing the world can do for us is to accept us. So the world starts accepting us, it starts influencing us.
3: We were, John and I were just talking the other day about professional athletes and Christians who have the opportunities to do that and how people, oh man, that, that's awesome. That's the worst thing that could ever happen to you because what, what is that going to require of you? What, is, what all are you going to have to compromise because of that? I don't care what the sport is. I mean, in the, in the little bit that I've played volleyball and have gone to some, some tournaments, it's, it's been a problem in that, and that's just for fun. I mean, yeah. you know, so what if you're on a professional sports team and they're paying you billions of dollars to do this? <laughs> and, like, sorry guys, I'll be a little late for the first quarter because i got to go to church Sunday.
0: <laughs> well, it, it, it is difficult for us to fit into the world and, and be right with the Lord. It's probably not a surprise that a lot of the early christians were slaves and things like that and and you know we just got to value christ over our worldly position and and it does offer us challenges and and what we need is to help each other and encourage each other and strengthen each other to hold the line and to love god more than anything and uh if a christian won't help you do what's right you know the world won't (laughs) And so that's why it's so dangerous when our own standards aren't what they ought to be. So I think, you know, Timothy's really helpful to us. I mean, just that concept of fighting the good fight. And, uh, and we need that, you know, for us. And, uh, you know, Timothy's probably a little stronger than some of the books we, we read. And, uh, you know, steps on our toes more, and it's going to keep doing that. But I think I think that's helpful for us. So really good comments, good good class, good discussion. I won't be here uh, until who knows when. Uh, I think perhaps the first Tuesday, first Monday in December. I think that's when that is. But I understand you all are continuing to meet, and you're going to learn a bunch. So uh, <laughs> don't uh, don't let my absence deter you. But as far as my being back, I think the first Tuesday in December.
4: Monday. Uh, time but we at least